live. You're, you're going to be right next to the mic. We don't need that. So we're about to begin. Um, Kevin and Peter, it would be great if you uh, made your way to the, uh, to the front. Unless you want Barrett to talk the whole time. In January, Tim Wyant, the executive director of the Squash and Education Alliance, invited me to help lead a panel discussion at their annual leadership assembly. So enjoy. I'm James Zug, and this is Outside the Glass. I know that's a very familiar uh, line for all of you who listen to uh, U.S. Squash's podcast, Outside the Glass. Um, since we created the podcast nearly four years ago, we've been talking about doing a live uh, taping, and this is the perfect opportunity. We're really thrilled to uh, have it before a live audience, and we want lots of rioting and uh, throwing of vegetables, so um, feel free to uh, be boisterous. Um, and I uh, wanted to thank Tim uh, Wyant for... Uh, uh, asking me to do this and, and, and to experiment with a, a live taping um, of this uh, panel. So uh, we have three distinguished uh, leaders in the game. Barrett Takesian is from uh, Portland. In the last seven years, he's uh, taken a very sleepy squash city and turned it into a real uh, a dynamic mecca for the game. Uh, leading uh, uh, a real unique partnership uh, model for for uh, urban squash and uh, community squash in Portland. Um, so Barrett is uh, to my right. To his right is Peter Nickel. And Peter um, also is very involved in, in various levels of the game. He is a former world champion who was world number one for 60 months, um, originally from Scotland, and now is a full-blooded American, maybe. Um, He's uh, got an anchor baby, and... uh, um, Whatever that means. (laughs) uh, And so Peter's um, involved with uh, his academy, uh, and very involved with the Moses Brown Squash Busters partnership in Rhode Island, and uh, probably we'll talk about his new initiative, uh, here in Manhattan, which is very exciting. And to his right is Kevin Klipstein. And Kevin is the CEO and president of U.S. Squash. He's had that role for just over 14 years. And so is one of the uh, leaders of the game, uh, both nationally and internationally. So we're going to talk about the future of squash in America. It's a very small and um, uh, easy subject. We're probably going to knock it off in about 10 minutes. Uh, with no questions, I'm sure. Um, Barrett, would you like to start and, and tell us about the, uh, the future of squash in America? Sure. And I'll start by talking about the two people to my right. So uh, Kevin, first of all, I think is just doing an incredible job at U.S. Squash. And to decide to get involved in the game after graduating from college and to have so many things happening right with our governing body gave me a ton of confidence to get into the sport. Um, I think one of the goals I heard in Outside the Glass is that U.S. Squash hopes to be the best governing body of any sport in this country. And I believe that in every aspect of our sport, we're trying to be the best. We're trying to be the best when it comes to youth development. We're trying to be the best when it comes to building community to the values that we believe in as a sport. And yes, we have challenges about accessibility and inclusion and diversity, 
but we have the best minds um, working on this and a lot of energy and a lot of incredible kids inspiring us. So I'm incredibly grateful about the challenges. And then with Peter, my childhood hero, uh, not to make you blush, my friend. Or feel old. Or feel old. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, whenever there was a, a need for our sport, uh, just take squash skills, his, his, uh, him and his partner Jess worked on a project to bring the best coaching to, to the masses. It, it was incredibly transformative for me when I was trying to break onto the scene as a coach. And now to have Peter working on the facility game as well uh, and the accessibility issues that we're both so passionate about, um, I couldn't be more excited. Personally, we're just little sleepy Portland, Maine, and we're experimenting with the best of our sport in Maine with a small community that allows us to be nimble and to try new things. And I can tell you just from the experiments we've been doing uh, since opening our facility in a former synagogue two years ago, um, the future is extremely bright, and uh, the people that are part of our squash community um, really talk about it as if it was a religious space. This is where community gathers. This is where we create a safety net for, for people at risk in our city. And uh, this is where we experience a lot of joy together. So um, couldn't be more excited about talking about squash today. And thanks for having me. Peter? Uh, how do you follow that? <laughs> Barrett. Um, I would like to say something about Barrett. Um, I think the, the thing that most impresses me about Barrett is the level of detail and the level of uh, commitment that he has shown. And I know everyone in this room does something similar. And I personally am generally bowled away by that level of commitment. Um, to do what you do day in, day out, um, to tinker with every aspect of how to build that community through having a, a squash center um, is special. And it's something that... I think everyone here and people around the country who are involved in the game are starting to realize it's possible almost everywhere. Um, I'm involved in both uh, a center in Rhode Island and then we're building a new center here in Manhattan. And both of them have community in the titles. And there's a reason for that. I mean, for me, coming from the UK club means something very different to what it does here in the, in the U.S. A club in the U.K. It could be a boys club, it could be a boxing club, it could be a squash club, it doesn't matter. But here, there's a very specific connotation. And he, having a center and having a community center, I think is the, for us, for, as in, in terms of a wording, um, it's just it's emblematic of what we're trying to achieve with those, those places. We want it to be a place where people gather, um, where community is built, um, and I think from my perspective, um, I want to see the middle ground filled in so that there's obviously, we have all the, the clubs where people are playing around the country and have done for decades. We have urban programs, um, which obviously cater um, for squash and education. But then the, the middle ground where there's millions and millions of Americans who want to play squash, um, and they can't right now. There's not the facilities, or the facilities aren't available to them, or they just don't know about it. Um, one thing that was really exciting in the last uh, day or two with regard to our community center in, in Manhattan is we went live with uh, the affordable memberships. We didn't promote them. We didn't say anything about them. It just went up on the website. And within 24 hours, we had eight applicants send their W-2s in and commit to being members. These are people who we don't know. I've never seen them around a squash venue, squash courts, but they want to play squash. So I think what I'll, I'll finish with here at the start for me is just 
this is an incredibly exciting time for the game. I mean, the game is changing so fundamentally and drastically across the country. And there's an opportunity here to build something really unique and special. I've seen the mistakes happen in the UK. I've seen it happen in Europe where there was the boom and the bust. And for me personally, I want to build a business, but I also want a legacy of mine to be that there is no boom and bust here. If I can help create the environments where the courts are utilized, they're monetized, and therefore they will not be gotten rid of in any shape or form at any time, um, and that can be a long-standing um, change, that's something I'd be very proud of and feel like I was successful in the game. And I think we can do it here because we've seen the mistakes. We have great people working in the game. We have a great organization. And I think people understand the, the need for that. Kevin? Jim, thank you. And I want to thank Tim Wyant and SEA for the chance to be here. I think by contrast to my fellow panelists, I'll talk about myself and the organization I lead, and then I'd like to talk about what all of you think of me. Um, in all seriousness, uh, U.S. squash is really about four things, increasing access, building community, uh, aspiring towards excellence, and promoting sportsmanship. And uh, there's a lot of overlap with uh, what the urban squash and education programs do across all of those things. And so it's it's been one of two, it being squash and education, one of two major shifts in the game over the last few decades, uh, the hardball to softball, which has left us with the best facilities in the world uh, and a future-looking mindset, uh, and then um, broadening the community and changing the mindset of those who, who have played the sport to understand that this is a sport that should be accessible to everybody. So uh, glad to be here. Before we open it up to questions, I... Uh, uh, we've seen overseas uh, in a lot of countries that there was a rise like there was in the States in the 70s and 80s, but there's been a real dip down. And um, how do we avoid that? How do, how do we um, not have sort of, as you say, Peter, the barbell effect of some elite uh, city and country clubs and the urban uh, programs? Uh, but, uh, you know, how do we maintain the great variety of squash um, facilities and programs in the U.S. What, how do you three see uh, us you know, learning lessons from what, what's happened overseas? We can just go down the line. I'll, I'll, I'll just start by saying that, yes, squash is difficult from a business perspective because the court is 600 square feet and it serves two people. It needs a high ceiling. It's just a difficult, a difficult problem to solve on a mass scale. But we have to do it one community at a time, one building at a time. And uh, in, in, uh, in Portland, um, we, we rebranded the sport. We stopped, we stopped talking just about SEA and, and urban squash, and we stopped talking about private clubs. And we, we came up with the term community squash. That's what we felt squash had to offer our community. We said bringing, bringing this facility to our city will make this a better place to live and to grow up. And our, our state um, has a newfound diversity, and it needs inclusive and positive communities. And squash just happens to be one of the tools that could be extremely effective at building community. And we've, uh, we've proven that in Portland. And I'm on the phone every day, honestly, with another city where, uh, where courts are a dream in that community. And there's a vision for, for a similar positive, inclusive community. I, I'm making plans to be in Atlanta to help 
A-plus squash, hopefully, uh, with conversations. Um, I've been on calls with folks in Jacksonville, Florida, Houston, Texas, Phoenix, Arizona, New Brunswick, Canada, uh, Brooklyn, Manhattan Community Squash in New York. So it's coming, but we have to stop thinking of it uh, purely as one or the other and really as a a community center. I think Peter's got the word. I think that's the movement that's going to take us forward. I agree with Barrett. I think that has to happen. Um, Otherwise, it will not be sustainable. The other thing I think really personally, from my perspective, having lived through it in in Europe, is you do have to monetize the courts, and you have to uh, make sure there's programming and there's value to that space so that um, the space space continues to be squash. Um, It's slightly different over here, I think, in terms of there were so many... Uh, clubs in the in the UK and Europe um, that were not associated with schools or colleges. It was a very different model. They were just um, centers of places. I grew up in a place that had 10,000 people, the village I grew up in, and they built six squash courts there, and I played squash. Um, it lasted about nine years. So if I hadn't been born in exactly that time, I would never have even known what squash was or played squash. Um, and that's a tragedy. But again, so I think it's slightly different here in terms of where the squash centers are and, and how it's linked to the community. Um, but the next stage of when, as we're thinking and looking to build a lot more community centers and clubs, it's making sure that they're sustainable. And I think a lot of that with squash, um, having seen it in other places, comes down to making sure they're financially viable, more than financially viable. So I think that's a big part of it. I agree with with all those comments and huge compliments to Barrett for everything he's accomplished there. And if, if you don't know a lot about Portland Community Squash, check it out. They have some great videos. Uh, a real leader is setting the template for what could be done around the country. So uh, we've, been, we've been learning from him, and, and Barrett's great about putting out things to us that are really easy to say yes to. A uh, good example of that is... Uh, an internship program. He's saying, I'm thinking about pulling together a summer internship program. I'll have them run a tournament. We'll run them through the coaching course, and we'll have them learn how to operate the club and get some exposure there. He said, will you give me, I don't know what the ask was, $1,000 or something. It's like, no, we'll give you $5,000. You know, that's a great idea. We'd be happy to draft off that. He he led it, and we're going to do that in four or five other venues uh, next summer, too. So, uh, he's a, he's an innovator and a leader, um, but you know, I think there are two great strengths of the sport in the U.S., uh, which makes us very different from the rest of the world. Uh, one is is the college game and the game in private schools. But there's such a solid base of support there, and it's it's really in a place that doesn't quote necessarily need to be paid for in a sense. As long as the the game sustains itself and continues to grow, I think squash will maintain support at these major institutions. And the other is the private clubs. I mean, as much as, you know, you look up and you see uh, images of seven white men on the wall here, and we're talking about diversity and inclusiveness, um, at the same time, uh, clubs are robust, and they really support uh, the sport uh, to a large degree and, frankly, support a lot of the urban squash and education programs. Um, so the question is, you know, how, how do you use those as a base to grow uh, viable commercial models? And I think it's an all-of-the-above strategy. It's everything from converting racquetball courts to doing models like Portland Community Squash to in really vibrant communities with a lot of people in New York doing models 
that uh, Peter's pursuing, as well as more community-based models. One of the areas that we want to lead in is, is making squash a publicly accessible um, middle and high school sport and uh, picking one state where we can actually do that, whether it be California or Texas or New York or New Jersey and saying, we're gonna go after it, we're gonna make this a recognized varsity sport at the high school level and then build off that. So uh, there's, there are a number of areas in which we can attack it at that level. And I, and I think in linking it up with these broader institutions and broader movements creates a more sustainable approach to, to growth. Um, they cover a story in this uh, month's Squash Magazine and uh, the January podcast was on the Spectre Center. And, and that's um, a very particular way of uh, attacking the fundamental issue of access in America. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, about that, uh, that plan, Kevin? Sure. So the Spectre Center... Uh, is featured in Squash Magazine, and there's a in, Inside the Glass uh, podcast, and it will be open in fall 2020. It'll be 18 singles and two doubles courts. It'll be the U.S. Squash National Headquarters. There will be a Learning and Innovation Center, out of which uh, a chapter of the Squash Smarts uh, program uh, will operate. Um, there will be our Hall of Fame, and uh, we'll host many major national championships there and it really will be a place for us to experiment to pilot to uh, lead uh, in in every aspect and so we think of it as effectively a publicly accessible facility that's open to the public people can come and play for free uh, they can uh, come and pay to play nine dollars or something for a court hour uh, during certain times, we'll have memberships with other access privileges and things like that. And uh, what we're really looking to do is innovate and prove models uh, across the board. Uh, we'll borrow from from every model out there, and we're looking forward to uh, uh, expanding sort of the definition of what community access really really means, um, and really in partnership with, with Squash Marks in Philadelphia, because uh, I know they're eager to. Uh, to bring squash to a broader audience in partnership with the public schools there, and how can we leverage that to increase access across uh, the Philadelphia area that ultimately feeds up into a national center. So we think it's going to be a place that uh, will be active uh, 17, 18 hours a day, 364 days a year probably, and um, uh really being a coming together of the entire community so that we can start to realize the benefits of how diverse the community really is. Yeah, that's great. It's really uh, exciting. Um, how do we, last question, how do we sort of uh, combine urban squash and, and these uh, public-private models? Uh, we were just talking about what's going on in Charleston. You know, there are all these different ways of, of getting courts and then populating those courts. In uh, urban squash is really sort of uh, you know a central part of that. Um, all three of you have been involved in in, in uh, uh, connecting urban squash to facilities and to programming. Uh, down the line again, this is Barrett. Um, sorry, 
repeat that question one more time. Just the just the last piece. I've I, got the I didn't answer. understand it either. No, I've, I'm with you. Oh, I got urban you. squash and, and how do we bridge them? How do you bridge that with facilities right. and and uh, and, and exactly. you know, populating the, Thank those you. courts? Had a lot going on up there, so I had to parse it apart. Uh, once again, U.S. squash fit for life, and um, the Squash and Education Alliance has certainly inspired me. I think everyone in this room about what a positive community can be. Um, one of the things I think about every day is um, we, we're young programs and we have uh, two and through college, we're figuring out two and through college. But post-college, the squash community can be a community for life. And I want to make sure that it's a community life for, for life for, his, for, um, for every student that participates as a, as a kid. So in Portland, uh, we're really excited to know that when our students graduate, through our, from our program, graduate from college, um, there'll be a place for them and an affordable membership for them if they choose to come back to the Portland, Maine community. And I hope a lot of our kids that I know now, I'll know for the next 60 years if I'm around that long. Um, so finding a, finding a way, um, you know, we've done such a great job from third grade to senior year of college. The next The next chapter is what's what's senior year of college to 90 years old look like. And uh, we've proven that we can do it at the young ages, and we will do it at the older ages. It's it's really fac- facilities and thinking creatively about how we leverage and utilize our facilities is how we're going to do it. And the solution will come. You know, we have public courts now in New York. How cool is that? Um, you know, subsidized adult membership in, in New York City. And if any, if something can work in New York, it can work anywhere. So I'm very confident that we'll, we'll find the solutions in our smaller communities as well. I mean, Peter, you, you've been working in Brooklyn, um, uh, and now you're trying to come into Manhattan, and there are some really unique dynamics that are uh, at play with that, that, that project. Yes, there are. Um, the... Being in Manhattan, or like we are, we're definitely coming into Manhattan. By the way, <laughs> I'm not trying. Um, it's very unique trying to do anything in Manhattan in terms of the cost of real estate, um, and certainly when we're talking about the size of a squash court and everything that Barrett mentioned before with regard to the, si- the 600 square foot and two people on court at any given time. And of course, you could monetize it a lot better using doing something else. Um, one thing with that is we're a non-for-profit. The Squash Center is a non-for-profit that's going to be running the uh, the facility. Um, and then Nickel Champions Academy within that will be running a for-profit um, to then help fund and subsidize and make, ensure the, the center stays um, in operation. Uh, and that's kind of what I was talking about earlier in terms of monetizing um, the centers and the courts to to ensure that there's always a good reason for those courts to be there. And I think uh, in institutions and other places, it's it's easier to think about them always being there. Uh, In the schools and the colleges, the courts will probably always always be there and there will always be a thriving community playing squash. But when you want to get out to, when you want to have another, I mean, last year, Kevin, you talked about having 10,000 courts, I think, up from 2,000. I remember that well. And when you when you start to think about those numbers, um, you're definitely going outside of your um, current demographic. And how do you engage in those people, and then how do you keep them involved and interested? Barrett mentioned about the post-college crew. Uh, it's very important and something that needs to really be looked at. We're offering a reduced membership for them on top of what's already a, a reasonable membership here in Manhattan so that they can afford to come and continue playing. 
so we don't lose people after college. It's not about having played as a junior, got into college, played in the college, and then stopped playing squash. We want this to be, I personally want to see people playing for life as well. Um, the other area that I'm interested in and we'll really focus on in Manhattan when we, when we get going is the five to nine, ten-year-olds. Um, so the younger, younger demographic, and we're going to pair with a, a, a local organization um, called the Hudson Guild um, in, in Chelsea and get younger kids in playing so that from the very beginning when someone sees a squash court, sees a squash center, comes into contact with squash, it's blended. Everyone's in there together just playing and practicing and the programming's available as well for them. So from a very young age, everyone is just on the same footing coming in and playing and learning squash. And I think that is another aspect I'm excited about and I think is important. Um, so from a younger age, getting people exposed and interested in the game here in particular. Kevin? Uh, P Peter actually brought up a good point, which is uh, about the institutions that have courts now. And I think one thing that we're not doing is taking for granted that squash will always be at these institutions, colleges, or, or high schools. And I think when you look to other sports in terms of what they're doing, uh, you look at ice hockey, for example. Uh, if you go to a boarding school in the Northeast on a weekend, um, that rink will be used 18 hours a day. Uh, or just about, uh, and um, that's because there's uh, morning learn to skate, and there's peewee hockey, and there's figure skating, and and then and on and on through through sort of older ages, and then there's adult hockey, um, and so uh, there there's a lot that we can borrow from in terms of just our current existing inventory to make sure that we're getting full utilization there, uh, even if it is uh, sort of someone else's operating cost. So I think that's really important, and I think that's something that uh, U.S. squash uh, needs to do, and I think, frankly, we're behind on, uh, both on the junior side, just sort of younger ages and just more fun opportunities to play, and on the adult side. Um, so I think that's an important point to make. But just kind of turning your question on its head a little bit, I would just say, because it's really about uh, finding locations for urban programs and maybe new urban programs, but... Um, we really view urban squash uh, more on a continuum rather than sort of a narrow and deep only uh, uh, concept. Um, squash and education is about a model and a very high quality and a specific objective, uh, which uh, has really transformed the sport, in my view. Um, at the same time, even programs that are struggling uh, are doing amazing work in introducing new people and new families to the sport and taking the sport to a whole new level. And uh, I think there's room for uh, those programs and programs that are extended out of urban squash and education programs. So, for example, even street squash, I don't, know, I don't think George Polsky's here now. Oh, there he is, George. I mean, George is such a modest guy. And you say, George, does squash matter? And he'll say, absolutely not. Um, but having kids be physically active and having the opportunity to be physically active when you're a kid is really important. And so street squash uh, runs hundreds of kids through their courts uh, during the week in partnership with schools. Now, it's not something that George really talks a lot about, but that's a massive extension and reach of and utilization of a facility that uh, I think you know, we can all look at and say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of benefit to everyone in that regard. It's exposing more kids to squash. It's giving them an opportunity to play. Uh, they're just you know, benefits across the board. And so I think um, 
we potentially could be more helpful in linking up and creating those opportunities, supporting them financially uh, with professionals, et cetera. So, uh, and I, I guess I would just sort of put an exclamation point at the end of that, which is to say, as kids come through these programs, you have 400 kids in college now, uh, we feel stressed about providing them a place to play as an adult for their entire lives. Uh, we want to continue to have these kids in the squash community and to benefit from the network. And so uh, we feel really under the gun uh, to, to push on, on this access issue. Exactly. Uh, questions, anybody? Baj? So the, the question is, uh, with tennis, there's a lot of uh, thinking about uh, the really young kids and, and getting them uh, going on tennis and making that on-ramp uh, easier. What, what about squash? What, what, what are the thinking about uh, making the on-ramp easier for squash? Yeah, Kevin, you want to? I, I think we're neophytes in that. I, I think we're way behind a lot of other sports in basically miniaturizing uh, the sport and kind of standardizing um, that trajectory. I mean, I have a seven and nine year old and they've been playing Saturday mornings for a couple of years and they happen to be with a pro who thinks really deeply on this and is really good at making it a lot of fun. And, 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 uh, but that needs to be, uh, uh, developed and shared with the community. And, and, um, it's sort of another area where, uh, we feel, well, things are growing and we're trying to help support and sustain that growth and, and, lay the groundwork for future uh, growth, potentially exponential growth. But at the same time, there's some really basic fundamental things that we can and should be doing. And I would say that's comparable to sort of the Learn to Skate program that we should be piloting and rolling out to every facility out there to say, hey, try this. George? So the question is um, thinking about all these uh, high schools and colleges, especially that have uh, courts and uh, they're not being utilized fully. And uh, uh, you know what are the uh, what are the ideas about uh, populating those courts? Yeah. So what, interestingly, what we found is uh, many of the people most dedicated to squash as adults uh, were vaguely introduced to it in college or learned it after college or you know as an adult, not a junior squash player. I think all of us who played junior squash and played into college all burnt out at some point and have been periodic players since then. Um, you know, the base is really, you know, adults, ultimately. And sometimes we forget, as much as attention as junior squash gets, the vast majority of squash players are, are adults. Um, however, to your point, uh, part of uh, the really positive evolution of college squash now is that uh, two years ago they went through a change in their governance structure where they went from being self-managed by their coaches to uh, having a largely majority independent uh, group of, of uh, directors with coaches in the minority serving as a committee. And uh, what that's allowed them to do is focus on some of the difficult issues around uh, sportsmanship and consistent rules for eligibility and compliance and, and, and really fundamental components to make it a level playing field for college squash and focus on, on quality varsity competitions that the athletic departments support and are proud of. And then the question now becomes, well, uh, what do you do with these club programs? How do you support them? How do you encourage emerging programs? And how can we as a sport uh, do what you just suggested, which is just make sure there's lots of activity there, whether it's intramurals or, or what have you. Tennis has a program called Tennis on Campus. And um, uh, 
so we're thinking along the same lines, and this governance shift has, has facilitated um, and created some space for us to kind of push into that to say, look, half of the courts in the country are at schools. We need to be having a direct dialogue with those schools about how we can help them drive programming. So we're, we're stepping into that space um, and uh, in partnership with CSA uh, without either group feeling weird or threatened. Whereas, you know, four or five years ago, uh, we would have had our hand slapped probably to say, oh, no, no, that's my school, get away. Say, look, w this has nothing to do with varsity squash. You know, we're, we're interested in, in driving activity at the facility because we know the more activity we have here, the more we have later, and we also just want it to be a healthy community. Uh, so the question is, um, are there other sports that have done, uh, national governing bodies have gotten involved and, and, and uh, helped uh, fill out the courts? Uh, yes, I mean USTA is one. Um, uh, U.S. Rowing is another that's very involved in college activity. Uh, Non-Olympic uh, U.S. Uh, rugby, uh, USA Rugby. So there, there are decent number of examples. And and by the way, um, national sports governing body engagement at the collegiate level is strongly encouraged. I mean that's a that's a relationship that is encouraged, and so I think sometimes people say, oh, that's sort of um, um, church and state or what have you. It's not because the reality is college programs is the pipeline for Olympic athletes at the end of the day and sustain and train, and, and in swimming, for example, um, uh, an elite swimmer will pick a college because of the coach because they know they'll swim there, but they'll stay there after they graduate, and that will be their coach really for their career. And so there are lots of examples that we can draw from. But I like the hockey example simply because you sort of have a finite um, facility uh, access. And how do you, how do you maximize that um, is, is an interesting way of thinking about it. And, you know, the court um, management system, Club Locker, that we developed in part gives us good feedback in terms of what is the court utilization, where are those opportunities, uh, where are the gaps, et cetera. Barrett. I'd just like to add to that that sometimes the solution's top-down and should come from the governing body, but Squash has shown us that usually it comes from our local communities. Uh, I'll just give the anecdote um, that in Portland, Maine, the reason we have a Squash community is because a volunteer software developer named Greg Bourne showed up on a racquetball court every Thursday at 6 for seven years, and he converted first 20 racquetball players to Squash players, and from that, added some structure and box leagues, et cetera. And from there, uh, the youth programs were added to the mix. And before you knew it, we had 500 people a week using a, a facility in downtown Portland. Um, the, other, the other thing I would add is when schools decide to have uh, a program on their squash courts, take Milton Academy, my alma mater, for example, um, one, one player or one alum, or excuse me, one staff member at Milton decided, let's have uh, the Milton Squash Club and open it up to kids and adults in the local community. And it was successful because someone did it. Um, when it doesn't work, it, it's when a school opens their courts and thinks it's a good idea, but there's no one to follow through. So we have, in my opinion, we just need um, my millennial generation to step up and start um, facilitating programming on open courts. If there's open courts, make something happen. And uh, if, you, if you make a compelling argument about building community at a school with underutilized courts, you're going to have a program. 
Um, I don't think uh, a guide about how to run um, an elementary school program from U.S. Squash is going to make that happen. I think a person is going to make that happen. So we just need more people um, building community with our sport. Can I jump in? Yeah, Peter. I think it's also really important to come from the middle. Um, I think there has to be systemized programming. Um, without that, you're reliant on that single person or people, mm. which then becomes problematic because they can move on, they can have a family, they can go and do something else, they have no time. So systemized programming is very, very important, I think, for this to be sustainable um, so that people can be interchangeable within reason. Um, squash is still going to be driven by that person who's leading, as we all know. It's, it's so important. But at the same time, having that systemized programming allows people to come and go, things to change, and therefore programs to sustain. Um, um, so that, for me, is, is hugely important. Um, I have seen so many places that are flourishing squash centers, and then one person leaves, and it's done. You can see it wither and die that minute that person leaves because they're taking all the knowledge with them. Um, and I think that's something we shouldn't allow to happen here. So as much as possible, making sure that that's taken care of so we can keep, keep either sustaining or building. That's, right. that's why you're sitting in the middle of us, Peter. Yeah. Anil? Yeah. So the question is um, about the stickiness of squash and how, how do we uh, encourage young people especially to, to uh, fall in love with the sport and, and want to stay with it the rest of their lives and, you know, I think we're all going to say it's a little bit about community. It's also about probably having uh, the teaching pro, the coach, uh, be trained properly. Uh, and U.S. Squash is working a lot on coaching certification to help ensure that they're making it exciting and fun and something that they want to go to, not something that their parents uh, want them to do. Yeah. I'll just add really quick that in Portland, one of our secrets is that our high schoolers teach our middle schoolers, and our middle schoolers teach our elementary school kids, which is the cutest part about our program. So every Saturday, um, kids are looking up to the next age group, and that's where those deep relationships are made, and that's been a secret sauce for us. So the, the question is sort of about uh, access and community, that you have these overlapping communities, different ages, uh, playing together and, and, and deliberately somebody's helping them have a lot of fun with it and goofing around as well as, you know, playing matches. Um, anybody want to comment about that? I, I'll comment on just the fun aspect. I think, um, and it kind of ties a little bit to both. Uh, there's some built-in advantages that the sport has. It's, it's probably a bit of a diamond in the rough in terms of uh, a sport in the U.S. in that, you know, it has, I mean, look, all of us are passionate about the sport, and um, it has all these great uh, social benefits and physical benefits, and you can play across ages and across gender, and um, parents can play with their children, et cetera. So um, there are all sorts of these built-in benefits that I think will will be, will continue to um help the sport sustain itself uh, because, um, you know, part of the challenges are just societal. I mean, things are so much different than they were 50 years ago. Um, and uh, you have screens, uh, you have e-games and e-sports uh, that are getting scholarships in colleges. Uh, you have parents who ultimately are misguided in, in getting their kids to specialize early in sports. And so with a small community as we are now, um, you know, 
a disproportionate number are really sort of pushed hard as juniors. So it's, you know, I don't really worry about the stickiness of the sport, the characteristics of it. Uh, it's just a question of, and every sport deals with this, you know, swimming, USA Swimming had a huge campaign about, why do you swim? It's fun. You know, all kids want to do is have fun until essentially they're teenagers. Um, so I think when we get to the point where we're, we're big enough to kind of need to make it sticky, I think we'll be able to address that. It's more of the non-squash aspects. Uh, and, and we're trying to step into the conversation a little bit more with parents too because for the most part, as, as you increase you know, their own awareness of, of their own behavior and the impact on their kids, you know, they tend to be able to of course correct to a degree. All right, one, one final question. Can I, can I just go quickly? Oh, go ahead. I yeah. think one thing with regard to the, the, um, the, the two, air, two, two sessions you mentioned were all groups. And I think there's a fixation here on individual coaching, individual lessons. Uh, and I think it's misguided. I think where you have the most fun and also where you learn the most playing squash is on with your peers or not peers, anyone, um, playing squash and having fun that way. It's a much more social environment. And um, it's something I fight against a lot, being a coach of mostly juniors. Uh, and my concept is much is as many group sessions as possible alongside, obviously, what I think is expert advice um, and structure. Um, and then have limited individual lessons. Because at the end of the day, you're playing against someone else. Um, so to be a better squash player, you should be playing against other people who are your peers and your compatriots. But then that also leads into having a lot more fun, a lot more social, and then more, more stickiness, more willingness to come back. So from my perspective, from the very young kids, there will be no individual lessons for the really young kids. They're all groups. They're all fun. It's just a lot of time going to be on a squash court. doesn't necessarily always have to do with squash. Just physical exercise with balls and rackets and ladders and all sorts on the squash court through to when you're talking about seniors, making sure that everyone is playing with everyone and interacting and having that social community and fun experience. Steve. So the question is about uh, accessibility, the, the fundamental issue of, of squash and um, how outdoor uh, courts might, might change the paradigm. I mean, I'll just I'll say yes, and I'm ashamed that I didn't list that as one of the areas of opportunity for growth. We have John uh, Dewis here, who's a uh, president of the Southern California uh, District, and um, the Olympics will be in LA in 2028. And uh, California, sort of, all, you know, up and down, is a great place to make a real push for outdoor squash because, uh, at the end of the day. Um, it's probably better to be outdoors if the weather allows you and uh, just sort of projects an entirely different image of the sport. So I think there's a huge opportunity there for sure. With or without, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as we all know, the game was originally an outdoor game and uh, its first 50 years was mostly outside. Um, so we're just, uh, you know, reinventing the wheel and, and going back to that. On that note, uh, that historical note, we're going to have to close uh, today's session, and uh, thanks so much for coming. And thank you to our three uh, speakers. That was really great, really enjoyable. Outside the Glass would like to thank our producer, Grant Irvin, our social media manager, Lorel Holly and all our loyal listeners who have reviewed and rated the podcast. 
shared their enthusiasm for it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and most importantly, has spread the word by talking about Outside the Glass with their squash buddies.